From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. I am your host, Nicholas Ibarra. And this week, we are bringing you yet another one of our patented Gimme 3 episodes. And with a new president in office, we've decided to do Gimme 3 presidential films. And now if you're saying to yourselves at home, wow, what a great idea, Nick. Where do you come up with this stuff? I'd say to you, it was not my idea, not my brilliant concept, this one. Uh, But it was a returning guest, and I'm just going to call you a Gimme 3 master now, Mr. David Chu. David, welcome back to Film Forward, and I'm enjoying making this a habit. Oh, me too. I this is this is way more fun than I imagined it would be. And given how much I like talking about movies, I expected it to be fun. So and, you know, I am so happy to be back. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to have you back. So you came up with this concept. We started working on this episode before January 6th, I believe. So it's been kind of fun and remarkable, enlightening and informative to watch and prep this episode over the last month or so. You know, it's been a scary few weeks, obviously, but hopefully this episode will help our audience make sense of some stuff. If not, you know, at least entertain you, which I think... Everybody can can use some entertainment these days. Yeah, I should also add, uh, spo- you know, I'm maybe pulling back the curtain a bit, but we're actually recording this episode before the inauguration. So I really hope everything went really, by the time you're hearing this, I really hope it all went really well yes. and everything is good. <laughs> so It's literally the, the night before the inauguration in about 13 hours, Biden will get inaugurated. Hopefully we pray an uneventful and beautiful inauguration and we can move forward with our lives. Right, exactly. So I'm just going to record this podcast, assuming that you're not releasing it into a Mad Max hellscape. <laughs> right. Oh, I might <laughs> but, you know, it sounds like a joke, but, you know, that fur horned costume made me really think, man, I, I guess we really are finally dressing for the apocalypse now. Here you go. This is that's me knocking on wood right there. <laughs> right. OK, so let's we're just going to dive right in, Mr. Chu. I'm going to have you start us off again. And this is give me three presidential films. Your first one is when we first came up with this, as you mentioned, I had said this would be limited to both presidents real and fictional. Yes. And so that's a point of clarification. So my first film is about a fictional president. It's a theoretical scenario in which one part of the government tries to stage a coup on another part of the government, which at the time was a really far, like a little bit of an imaginative concept. Obviously, it's really, I picked this movie before January 6th, so it's very strange to now really think about it in light of those events. It certainly changed my reading of it. But it was born out of some real anxieties. And actually, I think we're going to get into some of those anxieties as a result of the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this Mm -hmm. is Seven Days in May, directed by the fantastic thriller director John Frankenheimer and written by one of my favorite writers of all time, who I actually wrote a biographical film about that's currently making the rounds around Hollywood, 
Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone. People don't know this about Rod Serling because they think of him as a sci-fi guy. He was not a sci-fi guy. He was actually a drama guy. And when he went to do The Twilight Zone, there's a famous interview with him and Mike Wallace, who sort of said, hey, Rod, are you selling out by doing this sci-fi stuff? Yeah, little little wow. did anybody realize that Rod Serling would <laughs> that would become what he was known for. But he was actually a drama guy. And you can really see it in this film. The scripting is crackling. It mm-hmm. is fast paced. The dialogue is crisp. It rings off the ear. The characters are sharply drawn. The moral dilemmas are human and intense. And it basically tells the story of a fictional president Uh, President Lyman, who is trying to push through a a treaty through the Senate that he apparently has the votes lined up for. It's a treaty he signed with the Soviet Union where both of them are going to ban nuclear weapons, both mutual disarmament. And the military believes that the president is being hoodwinked by the Soviet Union, that the Soviets will not honor their end of the treaty and America will unilaterally disarm and then find itself at the mercy of the Soviet Union. And so Kirk Douglas plays the assistant to a charismatic chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and General James Mathun Scott, as they like to call him. In the, <laughs> and he is this charismatic politician, uh, like figure who is starting to really edge into politician territory. He's theoretically just the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's supposed to be above politics, but it is clear from a speech he gives, from sharing his opinion in in the committee, that he's clearly has eyes on the presidency himself. And he's handsome and he's charismatic. However, as Kirk Douglas starts to uncover, you know, his boss isn't going to do this by running for president conventionally and doing it through the electoral process. He begins to realize that there's a coup in motion and that even though he is devoted to his boss and he believes in him he realizes he can't go more along with this morally and actually begins to realize that this coup is at the highest levels of all the military apparatus of the u.s government so he goes to the president and i'm spoiling sort of the first beginning part of the movie but this is and it goes to to president lyman and he says he alerts them to this coup and unfortunately because lyman is the president is really unpopular right now he doesn't feel like he could just go out and fire the joint chiefs and say there's a coup and all that that the public won't believe it that will divide the country and so instead it becomes a almost like a mystery thriller where they have to kind of see can they get evidence what are they up to can we prove it's a coup can we figure out who's in on it can we avoid it and so it becomes half mystery half game of cat and mouse and it's just a crackling political thriller and it just buzzes along until it really reaches a very powerful and 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 very slam bang conclusion and it was born out of really a sense of that during the cuban missile crisis the military was pretty contemptuous of of jack kennedy they saw him as this young kid who was in over his head. And um, there was a sense of real defiance. It never got to any sort of coup. But it reflected anxieties, I think, that Rod Serling and the, the country was feeling about the growth and power of the military. I mean, it's worth noting that prior to World War II, the American military was not the juggernaut that it is now. Yeah. I mean, Eisenhower in his farewell address, warned about the military-industrial complex for a reason. This had happened in his lifetime. It happened as a result of World War II and the Cold War. So I think in the 60s, America looked at itself in the mirror and said, whoa, we've created something really powerful that has a mind of its own. 
And you can really see these anxieties play out in seven days in May. Absolutely, man. Yeah. And it's uh, the film starts off just like gangbusters. The the first scene, you know, it's like there's a combating protest happening in front of the White House. The country's kind of in shambles and it just ends in like a fisticuffs riot between these two groups. And in a way, it was like both refreshing and horrifying to watch it in 2021 and watch this movie that I think it does it take place in the 50s, right? Uh, I think it was made in 65. Yeah, I'm not sure when it takes. Yeah, it might be. It was 60. It was 64, 65. I think. Yeah, it came out in 64. So, anyways, obviously, this is uh, a fictional film, but it was just like, oh, not much has changed. (laughs) Well, you know what's funny? In that opening scene, watching it, I saw it after the Capitol riot situation, funnily enough. You know, all these movies, if I saw them, I went back and rewatched them because I wanted them to be fresh. And I watched this movie, and at first, there's a simmering tension between the two camps of protesters that are walking past each other silently with opposite signs, right? You know, either we should ban the bomb or we should, you know, don't disarm. And my first thought was, wow, these people are way too calm. (laughs) And then they break out into this fight and it was really, it was almost refreshing. I thought like, Oh, you had that too. Right. Yeah. So I thought it was in a weird way. It was, I felt like heartened. I'm like, oh, okay, well, you made it. You made it. Even though you had this problem, you you still made it. Okay. So maybe we'll make it. Okay. You know, it was such a weird reaction. For sure. No, I, I, I felt the same way. Like you said, it's the script is just amazing. And the themes that it touches on that predict a lot of where the country is going to go, just this, you know, fear, fear and power hungry men are a theme that are going to be persistent in a lot of the films that we're going to talk about yeah. uh, in this episode, which was unintentional. It was just something that came up in, <laughs> yeah. in, in almost every movie in a very overt way. And it started with this one. I also love that in this script, General Scott goes through all of these hoops and makes sure all his T's are crossed and his eyes are dotted and like all of this rigmarole and this elaborate plan to make this coup even possible and to keep it under and just like seeing what the attempted and failed coup on the six (laughs) is like if you handed me a script 10 years ago of what happened i would be like well this is this is stupid this is completely unrealistic you mean these these people are just going to walk into the Capitol like that would come on. Not even in the wildest imaginations of screenwriters and fairy tale makers. None of that would have ever happened. It's just too easy. And good God. <laughs> right. It's so true. They really have to sell you on how this is. They have to do a really slow burn. Yeah. Um, and it's not a slow movie, but I mean, it really, they have to walk you into the idea of the coup in seven days in May because they know you're just not going to buy it. Now, it's it, like you said, it was so preposterous what really happened. But it was like, wait, it was just a bunch of guys, some of which like dressed in like furs and and wearing, you know, like yeah. crazy costumes were going to charge the Capitol. I mean, and the, the president's whole scheme just rests on asking the vice president to do something he doesn't have the constitutional power to do is like, that can't be the act. Just that can't be it. That can't be the whole coup. But you know, yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. Before we move on, I just I just want to mention Kirk Douglas is incredible in this movie as he is in, in most oh, movies. Yeah. But uh, he is a movie star, man, movie, movie star. star, and he's just in so many anti-war movies. I I just love that he made that you know yeah. one of his 
career staples. Like he's in two of my favorite like anti-war movies, this and Paths of Glory. Also, I got to give a shout out to Ava Gardner play fantastically plays basically the other woman, you know, like at some point, Again, what a world we live in. Kirk Douglas discovers that Ava Gardner is the mistress of his boss who's trying to stage the coup. And the president debates whether to use this against him and it would bring him down in a moment. But in in the end decides, no, I can't do this. It's immoral. And like, he's literally trying to protect the country from the end of democracy. And he's like, I can't use this guy's affair against him. It's It's so strange to get to hear it, to see it now. Post Bill Clinton, post <laughs> Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels. Right. And to think not only is the idea that like somebody would hesitate to use that is preposterous, but the idea that that would even threaten anybody's presidency is also <laughs> preposterous. <laughs> right. But you know what's really daring for that time period is she's kind of the love interest, even though she's the woman, quote unquote, from the wrong side of the tracks. You get the senses. She's sultry. She. I think she wears a lot of black and it's a black and white movie, but you know, she's not the, in the David Lynch film, she's definitely the brunette versus the blonde, you know, that kind of iconography of cinema. And yet the film kind of hints that like, maybe there could be something between her and Kirk Douglas's character. Like she's the love interest. And that's pretty daring for, a, I, I feel like for a sixties movie. I mean, it would be daring now, I would even say. 100%. I feel like she's she's in a weird way with the most human character in the movie, too. Yeah, Seven Days in May. It is an incredible watch. I recommend everybody check it out, especially after what we went through January 6th. It is definitely a fascinating and intriguing and in a weird it's like like i said it's it's both horrifying and comforting <laughs> to watch yeah. this movie now yeah. uh, through the scope of 2021 but uh check it out it's available to rent wherever you get your streaming platforms i personally rented it at cinephile video which is located on santa monica boulevard in west la right next to the new art theater give your rental store some love there's good people over there and keep them in business because they need the love and they stock movies you can't find anywhere else oh yes anywhere Absolutely. so so really they are a local treasure 100 if you live in los angeles or if you're passing through los angeles check them out cinephile video thousands and thousands of hidden gems and big movies that can be for rent or for sale I'm moving on to my first pick, and we're like you said, we're we're sticking kind of with the same theme. We did not plan to connect our films the way that they connect, but it was just I don't know serendipitous, or maybe we're just starting to get kind of in sync. I don't know what's happening, but I know um, it's like when people start to look like their pets or something. (laughs) Right? Yeah, (laughs) it's like a weird synergy happening. Yeah. So my first film is Thirteen Days, which is about. The worst part about 13 Days is the lame title. <laughs> 13 Days is about, drumroll, the 13 days surrounding the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the film follows, in particular, President John F. Kennedy, his brother, then Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, and JFK's right-hand man, Kenny O'Donnell. And much like the last film that we just discussed, Seven Days in May, the president is combating you know, this perceived weakness. There's an alert that missiles are being exported from Russia and on their way to Cuba. And every single one of, uh, not every single one, but most of the advisors that President John F. Kennedy has are telling him that they need to take aggressive action immediately and essentially bomb Cuba or bomb the ships that are bringing these missiles from Russia. And, you know, John F. Kennedy and his brother 
they want to find a peaceful way to solve this crisis. That's a little backstory if you don't know what the Cuban Missile Crisis is. And if you do know what the Cuban Missile Crisis is, I still recommend watching this film because it is pretty thorough and really lays everything out in a way that is concise, but holistic, and all the while very, very gripping. This is a movie, like all caps, capital M-O-V-I-E, movie. Big score, big sets, big acting, big nuts, big everything. It's like, you know, like those late 90s, uh, you know, early 2000s, big president movie. It's like Air Force One kind of, but this this is about a real president. I just, uh, I hadn't seen this movie since, you know, it came out and I think it came out in the year 2000 and it's just a great popcorn movie, but you also learn a lot and it uplifts you with all the films that we're going to talk about. You'll see politics in action. You'll see lobbying in action. This movie is like diplomacy in action. And that is, is exhilarating to watch. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It's a, both it and Seven Days in May are these really fast-paced. Uh, like you said, it's interesting. It does feel like a product of the '90s, and that like there's all this like these sequences in between the cutting from the presidential suite from uh, the White House Situation Room or the Oval Office. We'll cut to like military planes being loaded and missiles being launched and warships. And I was like, man, what is the budget for this? Like, I feel like if you made this movie now, it'd be like an HBO movie. They would have cut all that military stuff out for budget reasons. And it would take mostly be a a series of offices. And not only the idea that they put all this money into this really grown up movie, right? It's about Mm -hmm. ideas and politics, but they had this belief that like a movie like this could afford a budget like this. There was a demand among the American movie going public for, for a really sophisticated drama with a a serious budget behind it. I mean, it sort of says something really lovely about America. It says something really lovely about America and it says something about Hollywood then as opposed to now. Like now, like if it's not a Marvel movie or a Disney movie, like you're not getting 30, $40 million. Yeah. The mid-range drama really suffered. Good movie. We're going to give it a hell of money. Yeah. Watching this movie, the thought I kept having to myself was being the president is such an unbelievably hard job (laughs) (laughs) because there are so many moments in this film and and in this moment in history particularly where you think there really wasn't a good choice while he's going through this putting yourself in his shoes you know day after day and he was fighting to try and not escalate this thing which is so admirable but at the same time you know there's there's huge risks on both sides both sides present huge risks there's even a line of dialogue where jfk like says if they want this goddamn job, they can they can have it because it brings me no joy. And you're just like, yeah, it would probably bring you no joy to have to. Uh, how do you sleep? How do you right. sleep at night knowing you just like millions of lives are in your hands? And if you make the wrong choice, which is easy to do, people will die. Yeah, I mean, there was a moment, by the way, JFK is played amazingly by Bruce Greenwood. Oh, just he like is great, fantastic. Such it's a the, great JFK. It's the best JFK I've ever seen. I think so. He's really good. There's this moment where I just suddenly hits you that he knows that he has all these, like you said, no good choices, all bad choices. And he literally knows that if he makes the wrong move, the world will end. Like thermonuclear mm-hmm. war will result. Yeah. Like, that's what the stakes is. People really believed at the time, and I think they're right, you know, but they really, they knew 
Like the whole country knew, the whole world knew that we were on the brink of world ending nuclear war. And that was really terrifying, right? And the idea that, like, can you imagine sitting there knowing that and having to make these choices? And the interesting thing, too, is at some point they're like, well, you need to keep up appearances. We can't let the secret out. So just go to all these, like, <laughs> silly political events. <laughs> and, and finally he says, like, tell, tell everybody I have a cold. I'm not going to do this stuff anymore that's you know, right they were like tell you no no you got to keep your schedule because if you if you don't if you don't show up to this you know public speaking event the country's gonna know something's up right so yeah it reminded me of obama making jokes at the white house correspondence dinner the day before they they killed osama bin laden right can you imagine had- what must have been on his mind like jesus right Christ. right <laughs> And I mean, and somebody made Seth Meyers made a joke about them not being able to find bin Laden. And if you look at Obama's face, he like laughs and like, and I thought, wow, that is that is a great acting. That is maybe some of the finest acting I've ever seen, because Obama, he doesn't let on at all. Yeah. That there is like, oh, oh, we know where he is and we're about to send in the Navy (laughs) SEALs. Right. And knowing that, like, you can't let it out, right? That would ruin the the surprise. Like you said, it gave me an appreciation for the presidency. There's a moment where Bobby Kennedy and Kenny O'Donnell are in the car together. And Bobby Kennedy's like, you know, kind of like, kind of, at various points, he and his brother are like, I don't know why I want this. This this is like a terrible job. Like, yeah. And Kenny O'Donnell says... You know, says, oh, we, we thought we could do a better job than anybody else. That's why we did it. We, we, we did it because we really thought we would add something to it. And I thought, yeah, that's really true. Like, if you sign up for that job, you are basically saying out of all the people in the country, I'm the best person to make these incredibly terrifying life or death, world ending decisions. It was surreal to come across it after a president who could not seem to care less about the awesome responsibilities of his job. I'm just going to mention the final shot of this movie. Oh, breaks it, your heart. After the deal is, oh, well, I'm actually, I won't, for those who don't know what happens in the Cuban Missile Crisis, or for those, you know, diplomacy triumphs and Bobby and John and Kenny they're all, you know, having a attaboy pat on the back and they kind of walk away and the camera does a slow pan over to the White House wall and the men cross through the shadows. We see their shadows crossing and the shadow of John F. Kennedy looks like John F. Kennedy is walking away into the sunset and it's just mwah, chef's kiss. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful final shot. Again, capital M-O-V-I-E right. movie. It is a movie ending. It reminds me of the place that a lot of people said Lincoln should have ended, the Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg Lincoln, where there's that shot where he walks out of the hallway and he kind of loses focus. And I know a lot of people were like, ah, stop it there. It's the perfect dead shot. Right. And regardless of whether you think they should have or not, it reminded me of the same idea of like the character just walks back into myth. Right. Yeah. And that's really what the film was. Like, as we'll see some from some of the other films that deal with some of the other historical presidents that like they take a much less rose colored glasses look at the figures that they're looking at. But Kennedy, you know, he still has this magical power over the country, you know, for a guy who really was present for a very short time. Sadly, you know, he was assassinated. My grandma, she loves JFK so much. She has a picture of JFK on her bedroom wall. Pretty big. Yeah. 
the power he held. I, and, yeah. you know, I do think there is something to be said about him as the first Catholic president was even for people who weren't Catholics. He was very popular. Among, you know, Rod Serling loved him. He was very popular among the Jewish population in the same way that Obama even was had a certain hold over people who weren't necessarily African-Americans, but mm-hmm. who who saw that as a groundbreaking moment, as a sense that this country, that anything was possible. Yeah. And I think a lot of just who he was and what he represented as being, you know, he was this new generation. He was somebody who overcame anti-Catholic prejudice to become the president. Now we have another Catholic as president, but, you know, it's hardly anybody thinks about it. You know, it's not unusual or, or strange because Kennedy already broke down that barrier. There's sort of a power that he holds in American history. And this one definitely has this sense, especially that last shot of what Kennedy means in our national saga to a lot of people. Like you said, like your grandmother. Absolutely. 13 Days, it's a wonderful popcorn film and a beautiful history lesson. It's a great watch. Check it out. Again, available to rent on all streaming platforms. And again, check it out. Cinephile Video, your local library It is available to the masses, and, and it's a great watch. All right, so Mr. Chu, your second film, our next two films, again. Weirdly was, <laughs> weirdly was, synchronized. Was not on purpose. Not on purpose. Uh, not planned, but your second film. Go ahead and start it off. Well, if our first two films were our, our Cuban Missile Crisis films, this is the embittered former President Nixon film pairing. And my film is Secret Honor, Robert Altman's very curious production. Yeah, It's really one actor playing Richard Nixon who is wandering around basically a single set. It just looks like kind of an office, but... Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, has paintings of various presidents and Hen- and Henry Kissinger on the wall. I'm not quite sure why. And his um, mother. And his mother. You know that makes <laughs> all the more sense. That I'm. You know I can understand having a picture of your mom. Yeah. Weirdly, yeah. having a painting of Henry Kissinger on your wall is a little strange. Even if he was your Secretary of State. But it was filmed on a shoestring budget at the University of Michigan. I feel like in yeah. in Ann Arbor. And he just got like a bunch of like communication students uh, to kind of work for. <laughs> you imagine, by the way, being like going to school and be like, "Oh yeah, do you want to go? Do you want to go be crew for Robert Altman?" Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, this is post Nashville. I think it post Mash. It's like really legendary. It, it Robert a lot of his big. Yeah, this came out in nineteen eighty two. Yeah. I think. And it's funny, I think you still get the sense it's a bit of a risky move. Like there's this long preamble that says, look, this isn't based on anything real. It's And the the thing, it's called Secret Honor, colon, a political myth. So they're still like, I guess, a little nervous about how it's going to come across. And it's a weird movie. Like there's no other actors. Richard Nixon seems to have security cams installed over all over his place, including in the room watching himself which is very odd. The actor kind of looks like Philip Baker Hall, who's an incredible performance, like kind of looks like Nixon and kind of sounds like Nixon, but not completely. And he's going off in these weird tangents and rambling things. And he talks about conspiracy theories, including the Bohemian Grove, which is this shadowy group, supposedly of oligarchs who, I mean, it's a real, it's a real like retreat. Um, but it's been the subject of a lot of like conspiracy theorists that these the shadowy this committee of a hundred and these shadowy group powerful figures of which Richard Nixon really did belong to this group called the Bohemian Grove as did Ronald Reagan were were secretly like behind all of this. It's a very odd film, and I think it's based on a story that in his final night in the White House before he resigned, Richard Nixon was roaming the halls 
yelling you know at paintings of of other presidents on the wall it's an anecdote that's been sort of passed down into legend and i think it inspired the film so because even though the film takes place long after his time in the white house i mean the fact that he spends a lot of time like yelling at paintings of former presidents on the wall yeah as if they were there to confront him with nixon it's like there's this chip on his shoulder he grew up from humble beginnings he wanted to be respected. He wanted to be taken seriously, you know, and he had some tough defeats in his early political career. And he had some like really dark family tragedy early in his life. Yeah. So he's like always trying to push, you know, push himself and get himself over this hump and just to prove that he could and to prove to the, you know, elites, which in this film, Philip Baker Hall is just like, it's a tirade on the elite motherfuckers who do not like respect him or who never respected him. And he wants to prove to them that he, he was the president and he did right. Yeah. So there's that, there's that element that makes him very fascinating. And you can tell like, that's what also kind of made him relatable and what so why so many people voted for him was because there's a lot of people like that who you know feel like they've got something to prove that feel yeah. like they've got a chip on their shoulder and if you work hard and do the right thing that you can do anything yeah you know, unfortunately we're revisiting that theme of power and power hungry men once they get that power then that the power kind of takes control and then it's it goes downhill from there yeah. But, you know, as you say this, I realize that that anti-elite, you know, like part of the problem, the reason we're in this situation with the coronavirus is there's been such suspicion sowed about scientists and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whoever the perceived elites are. You know, there's an anti-intellectualist strain, you know, that we see it with climate change denial and 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 all of this stuff. And and Nixon, in some ways, you can see this too. Like you said, like he, he certainly he was brilliant. I don't think he was anti-intellectual at all. And 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 this no. film presents him as very cultured. But you know that he was an outsider among all these people from blue bloods in in Ivy League schools. And here he was, you know, from the middle of. Uh, I've I've been to his his um this tiny little house where he grew up in, and it's in in the Nixon Library in Southern California. And you know he was always an outsider to those people. And I think he, like you said, he always had a chip on his shoulder for it. And I think that's why he tapped into a lot of Americans who also knew that, like, hey, we will never be part of the establishment, so screw them all. Right. I also have to say, part of the reason I picked this movie is. I don't know if Donald Trump, like Richard Nixon, will ever face any earthly justice for the things he's done. You know, people excitedly imagine, you know, who who don't like Trump that he'll, you know, see the inside of a prison cell or whatnot. I'm not sure that that'll ironic for a guy who chanted lock her up for towards <laughs> right. Opponent. I don't know if that'll take place, but arguably what this film shows is that Richard Nixon, as Robert Altman imagines him, is in a prison of his own mind. 100%. And and that's the justice that really he does get. And and that's the justice I honestly feel that probably, uh, this is obvious from this podcast, I'm not a fan of the 45th president, uh, how I imagine that Donald Trump is going to spend his post-presidency yelling at the wall and, you know, bitter and angry and reliving his past defeats and his past glories, but with not in a way that gives him pleasure, but in a way that only makes him feel more wounded. And, you know, the irony is the person who's doing that to him is himself. 100%. I really love this film so much that I've, before you picked it, I, I watched it actually. 
before you send me as this as your pick because I was just like imbibing presidential movies and I watched this and I was like, what? What? This is bananas. It um, really is. Since that time where I first watched, I've watched it twice since. Really? Because it's just it, and it gets like more interesting and there's more to dissect each time you watch it because I mean. Like your mind is racing as because he's talking a mile a minute and he's going, yeah. like you mentioned, he's going on all these tangents and telling histories of his life and, you know, accusing other people who've wronged him and this and that. So your mind's kind of like dissecting it all, going through the history yourself, putting yourself in his shoes, you know, thinking about Trump and all this kind of stuff. So watching it multiple times is really fascinating. There's a few things I just want to call out about the movie before we move on. You mentioned Philip Baker Hall kind of looks like Nixon, kind of doesn't. When the camera, the film camera, moves to the monitors, yeah, that he's got like a video camera pointed at him, and he's got like these four television monitors watching him. When the camera's looking at those monitors, it's uncanny. He looks like Nixon, and it's like yeah. it's like really scary. And then yeah. there's other shots where the camera's looking at him through the reflection of these windows, and he's got his like arms raised up in triumph as he's you know, reading quotes from his memoir. And it's just like, it's chilling. Again, this is a fictional movie, but it was just, it was, it, it really gets your heart racing, like watching some of those stuff because through the lens of the monitor, through the pixelated monitors and through the reflection, it really looks like him. Let and me ask you something. I'm really yeah. curious. What do you think that was about? I mean, that was my pick. I, that's the one thing I've never been, I, I haven't quite cracked yet. I've been thinking it over is because the, up until including the last shot, there's this, it's constantly showing Nixon through his like security cam photos of himself, like on well, these like blurry blue monitors. And I was like, well, well, clearly Altman is saying something here. I was trying to figure out what it what was. I what I took from it was that, you know, in Altman's depiction of this character, you know, he's got this camera pointed at him because he's still craving that attention. You know, oh. he's craving that that light, that fame. He wants to be out there. He wants to be in the thick of it, which is, uh, you know, something that Nixon says in the next movie that we're going to talk about. He he yeah. always wanted to, even after all of this terrible public shame that he got and, you know, like he really jeopardized his whole political career with what he did with Watergate. Like he still thought that he had a chance to like get back out there and get back into the game. So that's what I took from it was that just that he was he was hungry for it. So he you know, liked having the TV monitors on him because it reminded him when he had the whole world watching him. It's got to be. It's really true. Like, oh, that's a good point. It's got to be hard when you go out to a, a stadium or whatever of people screaming your name and to think that like the whole world hangs on your every decision, as we saw in, in, in our 13 days and, and seven days in May. Like to go from that to irrelevance has got to be, I mean, it's got to be crushing. Yeah, uh, and, and obviously some people, you know, Jimmy Carter managed to do a reinvent himself with like Habitat for Humanity, and and some people I think managed to kind of find some sort of peace. But I think other people, I mean, it's got to be hard. It's, it's really yeah. got to be hard to yeah, to yeah. lose that. And, I mean, it's like it's it's like an athlete going out on a bad game, you know? Yeah, like, it, yeah. It, it, it's it's an athlete being forced into retirement after having like one of the worst games of their career, and you know he wants to get back out there and go, yeah. you know, and make it up. But, you know, it's not going to happen. Well, that's the other thing, right? He's gone from somebody who's the most powerful person in the world to the helplessness, right? Like yeah. the one thing he can't do is he can't change his fate. 
The reason I think Nixon fascinates us is he really feels like a character out of a Greek tragedy. And he does remind me of Trump in that his own demons mm-hmm. are what ultimately destroyed him. It's it's like, it's kind of like, I mean, I imagine that's like, again, what they wanted to, you know, the goal of doing with House of Cards or with some of these other kind of stories of like, you know, the guy, the rise and fall of these sort of dark figures of history. His own demons are really what did him in. Yeah, with Trump, it feels like he feels like a sociopath or an egomaniac, you know. With Nixon, for me, the more I read about Nixon or or learn about Nixon, the more I want to learn. The more the more yeah. I learn about Nixon, the more I want to learn because it's so fascinating. It's a crippling self-esteem issue with Nixon. Crippling yeah. self-esteem issue. And he would just do everything he could to to combat that. The last thing I want to say about this movie before we move on is just how impressive a work it is for Altman because it's so anti-Altman. <laughs> yeah. There's one yeah, actor. Yeah, it really is. One room and it's 90 minutes. Those are all yeah, one room you can never find in a Robert Altman movie. Right. It's short. It's it's one set. It's very stripped down. The, there's literally a Chekhov's gun. He pulls out a gun and you keep thinking, is he gonna shoot himself? what's going on Uh, but then he doesn't really spoiler alert Nixon doesn't as you can learn from Wikipedia did not shoot himself in the head not literally anyway (laughs) yeah I mean metaphorically you know with his own behavior but again like you think well that's got to go somewhere but it doesn't it's so it's so stripped down and it's I almost feel like it's a filmmaker flex right Mm -hmm. yeah where he's like look I can do something with nothing yeah no it's other even, people it's even shot on 16 millimeter i think it's not even a 35 millimeter film right it's not like he's hiring janusz kaminski or you know he's doing it with students i mean maybe they're very talented they seem like very talented students from what they produced but he's not like hiring like these legendary crew people cinematographers yeah. and all that and yet it is utterly compelling also utterly compelling is my next film, which is also about Mr. Richard Nixon, and that is Frost Nixon. And if you have not seen Frost Nixon, it is a dramatic retelling of the post-Watergate interviews between British talk show host David Frost and former president Richard Nixon, who we've been discussing. And it doesn't really sound like a great concept for a film or like super exhilarating. It's about a TV interview, but Ron Howard just knocks it out of the park. Ron Howard really does film history, films about history. He really knocks it out of the park when it comes to that stuff. This man loves himself some history. (laughs) But what I love about this movie, again, as we've talked about, and as our audience can guess, as we, as we go on and on about Richard Nixon, he just fascinates me. So I devour stuff about him. But what was really interesting about this film to me is you see that chip on his shoulder in this film. You see that regret in this film. You see that self-esteem issue in this film. You see like him trying to fight for all the good things he did and try and dismiss the, the horrible things that he did. But what you have is you also have David Frost, who's this character who's seemingly very different, but who can relate to him, you know? And that's kind of like the twist of this film is you have two people who on paper, have very little in common. But we learn, and they learn, that they actually have a lot in common. And what's great about this film is they also both have a lot at stake. And they're just going head-to-head in these like points in their lives, these crossroads in their lives, this crossroads in their career. And that, my friends, is drama at its finest. Kind of like Secret Honor. I can't believe this movie works. Like, it's it's about, like, really, really what seems like it should be a minor 
subject, which yeah. is can this interview series work? <laughs> like, I mean, it feels like, you know, compared to like the Cuban Missile Crisis, like I can't, how, how is this at all stakes? And yet he meticulously sets it up where you feel emotion, you understand at every point what's at stake, what you're hoping for, what the goal is, what the drama is how it's humanly interacts with these characters. These characters, like you said, can't seem to be more different. You know, David Frost seems like a dilettante and, you know, Nixon is, is, you know, but he exudes charisma in a way that echoes maybe Nixon's rivalry with Kennedy. Yeah. Nixon is, is hardly has that charm, but he sees himself as a serious person. So they seem like opposites and yet they both come from humble beginnings and they're both trying to force their way back into the limelight after having been at the top and fallen from grace. And in the case of David Frost from having a, a TV show in America, right? You know, yeah. in <laughs> New York and Nixon from having, you know, been the president of America. And it's really interesting. You know, I remember watching this film the first time I watched it. And, you know, Franklin Gall, first of all, the two actors who play the leads, Michael Sheen, who I always love, and actually is part of the Tony Blair trilogy, if you like political films, The Queen, The, the Deal, uh, The Special Relationship. Michael Sheen is amazing. And Frank Langella, who also is just one of the finest actors that's alive today. This is his, his also his uh, his first of two appearances on our on our episode here today. Oh, yeah, that's true. He's also <laughs> yeah, he's also amazing. He's in uh, his Eye films, and and I have to say the interesting thing about when I first watched it is I kind of feel for the Frank Langella Richard Nixon. Like he seems yeah. like the sort of sad but kind of charming guy. Like he's got his own charm. He's not charming in the dashing playboy, jet setting playboy way that Michael Sheen's character is, David Frost is, but he's got this sort of like homespun, kind of like funny little hum- dry humor to him. Yeah. And you sort of feel for the guy. And I thought, well, maybe if I once I watch this in the post Trump era, well, I still feel that way, you know. And I still sort of feel like I still watched it kind of feeling for Richard Nixon. You feel a certain sort of sympathy for him in the movie. And at some point I wondered. Wait, are they going to make someone like in 50 years from now? Are they going to make a movie about like Donald Trump like this where you're just like, no, he's poor guy. He kind of has a charm to him. Because if so, I'm going to be really upset about that. Like, I, well, I, like, I, I wonder mean, if I lived through it like Richard Nixon, if I would have felt the same way. Again, that's why I kind of talk about like, you know, like with Nixon, there's there's things that you can connect to, you know, yeah. like you know, how he grew up, you can relate to that or, you know, like having a chip on his shoulder and wanting to prove himself. Like you could, you can relate to that, you know, having fallen from grace, you can relate to that. You know, with Trump, there's far less to relate to, but Oliver Platt and Sam Rockwell play two research journalists who, who helped David Frost in like compiling the questions and how they're going to attack Richard Nixon and how they're going to attack this interview. And they are fantastic in this, but there's this one great scene with Sam Rockwell ahead of the first interview taping, Oliver Platt and Sam Rockwell are looking out the window as Richard Nixon is getting out of the car and Oliver Platt says, are you going to shake his hand? And Sam Rockwell's character says, are you kidding me? No way I'm going to shake this man's hand. (laughs) And Richard Nixon walks into the room and he's like shaking hands with everybody and he comes up to Sam Rockwell's character and he's introduced and Sam Rockwell just says, Mr. President and shakes his hand. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, God damn, if Trump were in front of me, would I just cave and do the same thing? I'd like to think that I wouldn't, but. (laughs) I wonder, you know what it made me think of? I met Bill Clinton once in my college and obviously I'm more ideologically aligned with Bill Clinton than Richard Nixon or Donald Mm -hmm. Trump, but I supported Elizabeth 
Elizabeth Warren in the most recent primaries. It gives you a sense of where my, my politics lied. But still, I, I remember meeting him and there's just a magnetism. Like every thought, a few of us got to got to meet him, got to shake his hand. And it's just there's a power to the presidency that just just comes over you. And my mom, I, I told the story to my mom and she said, I remember one time I was at a, working at a hospital and Ronald Reagan came there. And, you know, my mom is a dyed-in-the-wall Democrat, like no fan of Ronald Reagan. But she said, I just saw him and I thought, I get it. I get why he won. Like some of these people, maybe they have the charisma, but maybe it's also that you know that they're the president. And there's just, I don't know what it is, but there is a power that comes over you. And I, I, I remember feeling it with Bill Clinton. Actually, you know who I met about a year ago is I met Kamala Harris, too. Mm. Um, And, you know, some of those people, they just have it. Yeah, as we've talked about, it's just it's it's that it's that power, and maybe it's once they once they get it, it it it's kind of all consuming, you know, and you yeah carry it, you literally carry it around on your shoulders. It really is one of my favorite moments of this film is that Nixon. He's again, he's charming, he's surprisingly funny, mm-hmm. and you feel like all of his crimes are sort of a distant echo. Yeah, except for one moment. When he says, roll the tape, and they play footage from the Vietnam War. And it was like it snapped me back to reality. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, one of my best friends is, is Cambodian. And what Nixon did with Operation Menu and the illegal bombing of Cambodia was, I don't even know what word to describe it. What happened was horrific. It's an and, yeah. And to think about the ramifications and what it led to and the echo throughout history. And Nixon, suddenly, this character, which had been charming in the end for the whole movie, I felt myself turning against him because he would sit there in his chair, all confident. And, you know, the whole drama is, oh, he's, he's such a slippery figure and he's an experienced political combatant and he knows how to like outbox David Frost. But I started out prior to that moment feeling like, oh yeah, he, he, there's something impressive about it. Like this old political warhorse getting back in the game and showing he still got it. But at that moment, I suddenly thought this sophistry is just games. Whether you win this interview with David Frost or not, you still did these monstrous things. Yes. And I think that is, it's very intentional with this script and with this film. And that's why this movie, I think, is so good because it plays the audience so perfectly. Yeah. It, it pulls you in, you know, like Frank Langella's character pulls you in, you know, and it kind of coerces you. And you want to shake his hand too a yeah. little you know, and then, and then once you, we as the audience, as we see that scene, it's meant to snap us out of it and be like, okay, all right, yeah, you did this really awful, god awful stuff, and at yeah. that point where the movie kind of turns, and it's just it's it's really really well crafted of Ron yeah. Howard and, and the writer to to pull it off and to save that punch, to save that left hook for right at that moment. It's really incredible. I will say, by the way, I went back and I watched some of the Frost Nixon interviews, and I do think Franklin Gella adds a certain percentage of charm. I, I did not find real life Richard Nixon nearly as charming in those interviews That's as I found Franklin Gella. You actually watch the Frost Nixon interviews; they're not nearly as entertaining as this movie. No, no, <laughs> it's a credit to Ron Howard. It's a credit, yes, it really is. And and honestly, so the two performers, Mike yeah. Machine and Franklin Gella, are just 
mesmerizing their moments together the other thing i thought by the way in the end the film kind of argues that the significance of this moment was that it kind of gave us the confession it gave us the pain that, that the country was so craving from nixon that it hadn't gotten but then i thought well if we really were satisfied why was robert altman making Secret honor. <laughs> like, right. like uh, well, that's the thing. It's like, I mean, David, you and I weren't even alive. And, right. we're, and we've just been talking about Richard Nixon for 45 minutes. Nixon is, there's something that just grabs America's attention about this man. There are more movies yeah. about Richard Nixon than any other American president. Because I was looking at a lot of presidential movies while yeah. we were prepping this episode. And there are so many movies about Richard Nixon. And that's why you see so many people just fascinated. Like Hunter S. Thompson is completely obsessed or was completely obsessed with Richard Nixon, even though he despised the man. You yeah. know, it, there's something about him that, and and we'll move on and, and stop comparing him. But, uh, you know, the same thing with Trump is like, you know, what are people going to do when they don't have Trump to obsess over next week? Right. But Richard Nixon, who achieved electoral success that Trump could only dream of, was a much more, in his own strange way, seductive of a figure. And I think it's a warning sign that we can be seduced by his intelligence and his pathos and his the tragic aspects of him. But there's a, I think the film kind of points out there's a risk that in the danger of being sucked into the power and the spell of a figure like Nixon, we can lose the stories of the people who were victimized by him. We can lose the story Absolutely. of the country. And that's what's more important. Yeah. And that's exactly that moment when James Reston, played by Sam Rockwell, you know, he knows the magnitude of Nixon's crimes, and yet he forgets it in that moment. And he can only shake his hand and say, hello, Mr. President. There's a danger in Nixon, too. I think, like you said, it's it's become this this figure, this cottage industry almost of analyzing Nixon. But And we should. I mean, he's a fascinating figure, but there's a risk that we can lose the voices of those people who are not as powerful and whose stories are just as tragic, but not stories of tragic downfalls done to themselves by themselves, but of tragic pain wrought by this man. You know, you always have to keep that in mind, too. I'm only realizing this now. When I think about what's one of the powers of what this film is arguing is that you can't ever lose sight of the consequences of these figures. It's not a game. As much as it feels like a game, ah, where, you know, he's constantly saying, I love being back in the arena, you know. Right. Right. You know, I'm going to go joust with David Frost. It's not a game. As 13 Days points out very crisply, this is life or death. And this is not about whether you're the wittiest debater. It's about the people who live and die on your watch. And that's really the ultimate judge of a president, not whether you can win a debate. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Milhouse Nixon, secret honor and Frost Nixon. I think it would make a great double feature. Uh, Secret Honor is available to rent on all streaming platforms, rent it at your local video store. Frost Nixon is available right now on Netflix. Check them both out. And I recommend checking them out within close proximity to each other because like I said, there's so many films on Richard Nixon. I think these two are my favorite personally. And I was happy we were able to talk about them today. We're going to take a quick break, everybody. When we come back, David and I are going to give our final presidential films don't go anywhere film forward returns after this we'd like to take a minute and give a very special thanks to our new sponsor e-minutes 
E-Minutes is a company of entertainment lawyers who are dedicated to giving a platform to underrepresented voices by helping filmmakers form companies and other necessary legal entities. They're sponsoring a new award with LADFF called the Emerging Filmmaker Award and giving their services for free to the lucky winners. You can find out more about them by going to LADFF.com and clicking on the E-Minutes link. Hello, I'm Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. This week, I want to talk about Robert Altman's Nashville, released in 1975. This movie is just so friggin' great. I had put off watching it due to the almost three-hour runtime, but the time flies by, and ultimately it left me wishing it was longer. Altman is the master of the ensemble cast and interweaving storylines. And in Nashville, that's on proud display, as there are 24 characters that we follow and get to know over the course of two hours and 40 minutes. The cast is incredible, star-studded, and do all their own singing. Some also wrote their own songs. Nashville, like the actual city, is very American in both fantastic and hideous ways. I wouldn't say the film is pro or anti-America. I would say that it's honest. Sometimes it's really upsetting. Sometimes it's beautiful but it's always compelling and the music is great. The film seems to say that when music is playing, all of our other cares fall away. One of the main characters, a folk singer named Barbara Jean, is basically unable to function on her own. She seems frail, ill, and unstable. But when she starts to sing, everything comes together and all of her pain seems to fall away. The power of music is also evident in the final moments of the film. At an event, something horrible and tragic has just happened, and it seems like anything good is now gone. But then a woman gets on stage and begins singing a song that goes, You may say that I ain't free, but it don't worry me. The woman singing becomes more and more enthusiastic and unbridled as she repeats the lines over and over. Then she's accompanied by an African-American gospel choir, and soon everyone in the crowd is singing along including me in my living room. It's such an incredible closing sequence. I could go on and on and talk about every scene in the film, but that was my minute. Go watch Nashville, and thanks for listening. And we are back on Film Forward, everybody. I'm here with Mr. David Chu, and we are doing our Gimme Three thing. Gimme Three presidential films and celebratory of our new president. David's pick so far, Seven Days in May and Secret Honor. And my pick so far have been 13 Days and Frost Nixon. And now it's time for our final recommendations. David, your last but not least pick is... Well, you mentioned our new president, so I felt like I wanted to pick a movie that reflected more Joe Biden than just sticking on Donald Trump, right? Like, I wanted mm-hmm. wanted this last film to kind of transition us into the future. And, you know, it's hard to say. Joe Biden's presidency hasn't started yet. But what I imagine Joe Biden to be most like, and what I imagine he could be come or he could represent is Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. And my film pick is All the Way. It was an HBO adaptation of a play by the same title. I actually had the chance to see the play on Broadway. Nice. It was a real treat to see Brian Cranston fresh off Breaking Bad 
play this incredible performance. And I was curious to see how it would be adapted to film. And indeed, as this, the screenwriter, I think it's Robert Schenken, had said he didn't want to just make a filmed version of the play. He wanted to play to the strengths of the medium of film. And indeed, it doesn't feel like just a, a filmed play. It, it feels like it plays now. Yeah, it, it feels like it really plays to the strengths of, of a film, like you said, like a movie, even though it may not have the budget of 13 days. What it tells the story of is Lyndon Baines Johnson, right after the assassination of John Kennedy, up until his election in his own right as president. So it's less than a year of time between Kennedy's death and I think it's like 11 months, if yeah. I recall. And it ends on election night when Johnson has won one of the largest margins in, in history and gone from what he says at the beginning, I don't want to be just the accidental president. And he sort of proves himself as a president in his, in his own right. And Johnson, you know, he's a complicated figure in, in his own way. I mean, he comes from very modest origins, you know, the hill country of Texas, as he, as he says. He's a real, like, visionary figure. He really understands poverty. He really feels the cause of civil rights in his core, and yet he comes from the limits of his worldview. He has no problem trading away voting rights initially, believing we could get later. You know, it's... it's he, do, he doesn't... He, you know, he... So opening monologue is talking about like his ancestors hiding from Comanches, right? Which I, you know, I'm sure they did, but you know, like there's there's a reason why the Comanches were upset. Um, <laughs> there's a little reason, yeah. right? And then like that's the limits of the figure, right? And you know, it's really worth noting that like Kamala Harris, Joe Biden's vice president, in her first debate with Joe Biden, it said like, look, you were palling around with these segregationists, talking about the good old days when we worked with them, but these were the people who were opposing these policies. Like, you know, you're opposing busing and such. Not that this is what enabled me to go to school. You know, that little girl was me, she said really famously. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense, you know, there's a part where LBJ kind of tries to, like, was it the term whitesplain to Martin Luther King? Like, oh, did you know that, like, black people have, have places, they can't stop at, at hotels, like, on their way? <laughs> right. to the like, I, I believe, I believe MLK is well aware of that, you know? And yet he also brings, LBJ brings this tremendous institutional knowledge as a creature of the Senate to bear to being able to get this legislation passed when it seems really hopeless. That legislation has never been able to be passed. And it takes somebody of such tremendous political skills to be able to do that, to pass the civil rights legislation through Congress that, you know, despite the objections of Southern Democrat conservative Democrats in his own party mm -hmm. and to be able to straddle the liberal wing represented by Hubert Humphrey with the conservative wing represented by, you know, folks like Richard Russell who's played by Franklin Gella and somehow to be able to like move through that and also make the hard choices and to make the strategic decisions to say, oh, maybe, you know, to be able to say, well, we'll have to save voting rights for another go around. But also the other, the other thing that the film points out is it's really like if you look at the poster, it's really a two hander, as they say in the business, right? It's LBJ and MLK. Yeah. And Anthony Mackie does an amazing job. And what does this really show is that it's not just about one man. There's a danger in these stories of the president of, be, of being seduced into thinking it's about some hero on a white horse 
coming to save the day. And indeed, some people have criticized progressives or certainly the Democrats for becoming very enchanted with Obama and kind of expecting him to kind of solve it all, right? Right. And the lesson is that it's a partnership between activists outside the government and people working inside the government. And sometimes you're working together and sometimes you're pushing each other uncomfortably. But that's what makes change happen. It's not just one magic guy who's going to do it. And indeed, there's this great line that Martin Luther King says, Martin Luther King Jr. says at the end of the film, where he says, you know, they said, do you really believe he's going to fulfill his promise to finally get that voting rights legislation? And he says, look, he's just another politician worried about his reelection. It's up to us right, to push him. And that's what I really feel like I want the message of people to take away as we enter this next presidency. Look, if you didn't like Donald Trump, and this conversation makes clear, I didn't like Donald Trump. There's a a dangerous temptation to say, well, the bad man is out of the White House. I can finally relax. And yeah, it's been exhausting. But like, when I think about the mobilization of activists, of energy, of people pushing for change, whether it was to save the Affordable Health Care Act, whether it was to help win the midterms or the general election, whether it was the people who knocked on doors or the people who called and wrote letters or raised money from small donors or who stood up to legislators and made their voice heard at town halls and at congressional hearings and in the halls of Congress in peaceful but in powerful ways, we need to make that happen even when somebody we don't so strongly oppose is the president. Maybe somebody who it's even more important to do it when it's somebody who we see as sort of more of an ideological ally, because that's the kind of person who's going to be the most responsive. Yes, the most kind receptive of to, uh, to the change. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the mess. There's a powerful message. Unlike 13 Days, which, which really, you see the image of Kennedy as one man alone. It all rests on his shoulders. And, you know, that's an important image, too. And there maybe are certain decisions where it really is a very lonely moment. But all the way really argues that the presidency is actually ironically bigger than one person. Yeah. And, and, the, and presidents are flawed people. I mean, LBJ is not, he's not treated with the same degree of, at least talk about the ending moment of 13 days. He's not treated with the same degree of reverence that 13 Days treats Kennedy. Like, he seems at the end, he's, like, sort of celebrating that he won. Like, I'm the president, you know? Like, he's he's the sort of power-hungry, you know, he's not power-hungry in the Nixonian way, but he's definitely somebody who's... Oh, he's definitely power-hungry. This movie lays that out pretty thick. It lays it out pretty thick. He's got some of his biases. There's a heartbreaking moment where one of his closest aides is busted for soliciting, I think, soliciting sex from another man or, or engaging in sex with another man in a, a men's restroom. And LBJ just throws him under the bus. Just like, right. well, we got to cut him loose. Like, there's coldly. And even his wife is like, we can't abandon him. He's, he's been our friend. And LBJ, he's like, no, he's got to win this election. So he's willing to to let this guy, and you see him in the film, who's faithfully served him and has been like a best friend and a confidant, like a son to him, cuts him loose in a second. So it doesn't portray LBJ as this paragon of progressive ideals. But I think that's a really important message, that these aren't perfect people, they're politicians. I really love the kind of mirroring of LBJ and Martin Luther King, not as characters or people themselves, but with the conflicts that they have to face. Martin Luther King Jr.'s faced with a lot of these 
dilemmas and and conflicts as well. You know, he's got to get these incremental victories through because he knows they're important, but he has to answer to the organizations that he's working with and the people who are risking and giving their lives for this movement. You know, he's got to go back to them and say, well, we didn't get voting rights now, but we're going to get it. Don't worry. He's got to play those battles, the same kind of battles that LBJ's playing. And so I, I thought it was really fascinating to. to yeah, put- you realize he's in his own way a politician. Yeah. He's balancing coalitions. Like, like you said, he's mirroring LBJ's balancing coalitions, whether it's Stokely Carmichael and Ben Moses, who mm-hmm. are more progressive, who are more chomping at the bit to make change, or. Roy Wilkins, who's more institutional, representing the NAACP. You know, that scene at the Democratic National Convention of 64, they're outside Atlantic City and they're fighting for delegate votes. And yeah. they, they give them a measly two votes. And one of them right. is delivered by, by a white by a <laughs> one white, of the white guy. Yeah. And all the, you know, leaders of these coalitions and these organizations are looking at MLK and they're saying, what should we do? Should we take these measly two votes? And he says, yeah, we should take them, even though, you know, it's not as much as we want. And it may be a little bit of a slap to the face. In the background, you have these protesters who are chanting, which side are you on? You know, I just thought it was a really, right. you know, it was a little on the nose, but I thought it was, it was well done. It was, it was uh, well done. And, and, it, and you got the idea that like, I'm okay, say, look, it's not about the votes. I mean, it is. And it, you see his heart broke for not being able to get more. But he said, we also got a promise to like, all future delegations can't be segregated. Right, right. And so he's like, I'm playing the long game. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice was one of Barack Obama's favorite quotes from MLK. And that's certainly, you can see he's playing this long game and it's tough. It's really challenging. And you can see the tremendous pressure that he's under trying to like, kind of like JFK, knowing that the wrong move could be disastrous. Right. I, I will say it's really poignant at the end LBJ wins, you know, you can look it up. He won a resounding, crushing victory. However, the South used to be the base of the Democratic Party. I mean, worth noting in the Civil War, the Democrats were the Southerners. um, And they lose the South. That's the one place LBJ, a Southerner, loses. Yeah, this is the the turning of the tide you're seeing in this film. Right. And there's a moment he's, he's talking to Richard Russell, who is this, you know, storied, senator from georgia and he says you know georgia voted for a republican it's never done that in its history and there's a sort of dark illusion that like the price of civil rights has been you will pay a price for doing the right thing at the ballot box and it's really poignant again to watch this film in a moment when he says oh yeah georgia it voted for the Republican because of LBJ's push for civil rights. And we're having this conversation after Georgia has voted for a Democrat, I believe it might be the first time since LBJ. I'm not sure. I think, I think no, it is. Carter, I think, was also. Oh, Jimmy Carter. Okay, cool. Yeah, and maybe yeah. Bill Clinton. Maybe Bill Clinton. So actually, LBJ says in the movie, he's like, they'll be back. And they'll be back. Well, they were. <laughs> but not only that, two of elect. So I, th- I believe they did vote for two other sons, uh, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter. So I don't, it's not as, as not as, biggest stretch as I thought yeah. initially, but it's still significant, yeah. but that they voted for as their two senators, a young white Jewish man and a black preacher right, as their new senators. And indeed, that feels like- Of Martin wow. Luther King's church, a preacher of Martin of, Luther King's church. Right. Before we move on, I just want to give a shameless plug 
This movie, I think, would make a great pairing with MLK FBI, which is available in virtual cinemas right now. It's an incredible documentary by the legendary Sam Pollard, and it goes even more in depth into J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI's government surveillance on Martin Luther King Jr. And I learned a lot watching that documentary, and I just had the esteemed honor of interviewing Sam Pollard, talking about MLK FBI, and that episode of Film Forward is available, the previous episode before this one. So check out that episode and check out MLK FBI. It makes a great pairing with this movie. I am excited to check it out. It really piqued my interest, the story of how much uh, MLK was surveilled by yeah. the, by Hoover, a man with his own demons, as we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the way. It's a great watch. As we mentioned, Brian Cranston, he disappears into this role, not yeah. like 10, 15 minutes into it, from the first frame. And probably because, as you mentioned, he was LBJ, you know, on Broadway before this movie. So yeah. he was in it. But uh, the film is available on HBO Max. Highly recommend it. And now, so we're going to go into my final film. And if you're looking to get out of stuffy offices and old white men and shirts and ties, we got a nice change of pace for you here. I've got South Side with you as my final pick. And it is about the first date between Michelle Robinson and Barack Obama. It's, it's actually not a date. Michelle makes that very clear uh, <laughs> that this is not a date. They are law colleagues. And the plan is to attend a community event, which they do. But Sly Barack has also, you know, some other plans. The film takes place all in one day. Barack picks up Michelle. They check out some some beautiful art. They have some good eats. They go to this community event. And Michelle is uh, in awe of Barack as he talks to these people who are, who are going through uh, some tough times about the community center. And you get to see a young Barack in action and you get to <laughs> you feel that electricity that he has in a room. And then I'm not really giving too much away because this is all kind of like this. Most of this actually happened. But they finish off the date by going to see a film that we talked about the last time David was on our show. Uh, do the right thing, uh, which is my favorite film, but that's how they, they finish their first day by going to see do the right thing. I really love this film. I just think it's, it's wonderful. It's very patient. It takes its time and calmly pulls you in, but it never feels slow. It just ropes you in. It brings you in and it kind of soothes you kind of like Obama itself. The movie says like, yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. It really is true. It's like Obama himself. It's got a very Obama cadence. Barack Obama's presidency is, is not perfect, but I, you know, he's, he's my favorite president, mostly because I just relate to his story a lot growing up as a multiracial man and kind of feeling like you're, you know, stuck in between two races and, you know, you don't really have a quote unquote home is something that I relate to and something that he, you know, alludes to in his books a lot. It's touched on in this movie. It's touched on a lot more in the, in the film Barry, which is not as good as this movie in my opinion, but it's still, it's, it's worth a watch. It's kind of something both of these characters are going through in this film. And Michelle mentions it while, you know, like going to work at this law firm that they're at. You know, she talks about leaving planet black, living in the South Side and entering planet white. The other thing that I find really fascinating about this movie is you go into it thinking you're going to be watching this really cute, uplifting, romantic movie about Michelle and Barack first meeting and love and first sight and all this stuff. But it's really Michelle and Barack challenging each other and challenging each other's place in the worlds. And 
it's about two young people just trying to figure out their place in the world. You know, they, they both want to do good. They both want to do more. They both want to help people. And they recognize that in each other. But they both have some stuff that they're battling through, you know, which is something that I think we can all relate to, where I certainly can. So it's really a deviation from all of these other films that we've talked about. But it's a beautiful grassroots look at, you know, what a president was before he was president, president and a first lady, what they were like before they were president. And I'm not saying that those other people weren't like this, but the reason I love Obama so much is just because he feels like somebody I know, you know, like he feels like he feels like a person. And maybe this is me being naive and, you know, bring on the hate mail, whatever. But I don't feel like he was a power hungry person like some of the other presidents that we've talked about in this episode. Yeah, I relate to everything you're saying. I also am a mixed race person. I remember when I first read his, I came across his uh, book, Dreams for My Father, when he was running for president. And I remember... Um, was and I was, sorry to interrupt. I grew up without a father. So that was another reason why like, I, I related to his story was we both kind of had that like, no yeah. home, no race, no father. It's... Uh, wow. Uh, that's intense. I mean, that I fortunately am able to have my dad in my life. So I, I can't imagine what that must be like. But I definitely related to him being in two different worlds and kind of finding your identity. And again, look, I don't think any president is going to be exactly what you want that president to be. Mm-hmm. They're always going to do something a little different than what you think they should do. Just everybody, you know, you have your own opinions. And that's good. You know, we should all have our own opinions. I agree with you. Barack Obama... As I look at it right now, I'm not really sure I'm going to see another president. Maybe I will. Who's going to resonate with me in the same way that Obama did? Maybe he's the one like JFK and your grandmother putting JFK on the wall and and really relating to him all those years later. Like I I was like, maybe that Barack Obama is that for me. There was something generationally, something outlook wise, something about his own perspective and what he represented to the country, but a new and evolving and a changing country. There was something that that he represented that was maybe even bigger than Barack Obama the man. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because the film is really about Barack Obama the man. That he's a very ordinary person in this film. Like yeah. he's got certain skills. He, you certainly see he's got like you said incredible rhetorical abilities, but he's kind of a regular like you can kind of imagine him he's driving this beat up old car that has a hole in the bottom. <laughs> right. <laughs> They kind of do what you would imagine a day, you know, it's not certainly not JFK romancing, you know, some young women on his yacht, right? Millionaire yacht or whatever his upbringing was. It was a very ordinary kind of upbringing. And so you can imagine yourself going on a date with somebody (laughs) at that scene at the bar where they're just sitting at the bar talking. And at some point you think, wow, that's going to be the president and the first lady, but they're just kind of, Wondering what their futures are about, and they're really not sure. Like Barack Obama, he's not saying, well, I'm going to be the president. You know what I mean? He's not, like you said, it doesn't seem like there's that ambition. He's um, not even sure he's going to get into politics. He just wants to do something more, you know, is what they what more. they talk about. You know, he wants to yeah. do something to help people. To help people. Now, I don't know. I mean, is that Obama? Maybe, maybe not. I, right. You know, maybe there is an ambitious streak to him. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's probably some 
sort of Obama, Obama one of Obama's quotes that I really love. This is actually one of the reasons I really like Obama. As he said, you know, I'm somebody who ran for president, so you know I have a pretty healthy ego. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like he's very he's very keeps it real, you know. Yeah. So, so but it's there's sort of an incredible charm of just like you said, two young people trying to find their way in the world. And my goodness, after the four years we've been on. And after the dark stories that we've told, whether they're stories of nuclear annihilation or government coups or the stories of embittered presidents who resigned in disgrace or even the tough battles, you know, to just give people basic human dignity. And certainly after four years of what feels like it's been a nightmare to just be able to end on our, you know, like end up on this note and to just for a short amount of time escape into a world of that's not naive to the struggles. Like you said, Michelle Obama struggles with being a black woman in a law firm dominated by white men. Yeah. And you see that. And Barack Obama certainly is trying to figure himself out between two worlds and what he wants to do. So it's not naive. Mm-mm. But to be able to kind of end with people like good people dreaming of doing good is just such a breath of fresh air. There are three things that the Barack character and the Michelle character are like battling with in their lives. And I think it's three words that I will leave you with on this podcast, because I think they sum up this country. They can sum up the presidency as, as a position. The words are judgment, anger, and forgiveness. Those are the themes of this film that are kind of like very internal as we follow these characters through this day as they try and find themselves and kind of confide in each other. I think they're words that we need to, I'm not saying abide by, but I think we need to consider them as we move into this post-Trump era. And I'm not saying we need to forgive Trump, but we need to forgive some people if we're going to be able to move forward. Yeah, I wonder how we're going to, you know, if right now I'm reading a book on the history of the 30 years after the Civil War, mm-hmm. because I find myself wondering, I mean, thankfully we haven't, gotten to that part but we've gotten to you know some pretty scary violent divides and i thought man how did this country put itself back together and the sobering answer is it wasn't actually that easy there there was still violence even when black folks got the vote in southern states people threatened to murder them if they didn't vote for the democrat you know again that was the sort of the southern power base party yeah some would argue that it never really put itself back together right you know, and so we see those echoes and Barack and Michelle are, are dealing with that. They're dealing with this as it's interesting that Barack Obama is there. He doesn't get to live in a world with a Barack Obama, President Barack Obama. Yeah, I was thinking of that at some point, like he doesn't know that he is yet possible. He's a young they're both young black folks hoping that somehow they can find a way through this world and grateful for the advantages they have. And yet somehow feeling like there needs to be more. And that's like you said, it's very relatable. And hopefully for all the kids who are listening to this podcast, which is our demographic, <laughs> ages seven to 14, that's our main demographic. They now know that they can do it. There was a Barack Obama. So, you know, hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, lead the way, you know, do it with good. Don't do it for the power. Do it with love in your heart and for the good of the nation, which yeah, when it's at its best, I still believe, and maybe it's naive of me. This is the dumb, naive American Nicholas Ibarra speaking to my audience right now and admitting it. When this country is at its best, I do honestly believe, with tears in my eyes, I say it can be 
the greatest country in the world. Yeah. I remember people would say, oh, if he wins a a second term, I'm going to go live somewhere else, right? And I remember people saying that to me. And I remember just thinking, like, I don't know. I mean, I guess the world is filled with refugees and never let us be so confident to think we can't one day become them. But I remember every time I would hear it, I would think, I can't imagine. I love going to other places. but Yeah. I'm an American. That's just it's it's like it's like being part of a family. There's things about your family you love. There's things about your family that frustrate you. There, you know, there's people in your family that you love that you're related to, and there's people in your family that you're like, oh man, we're really stuck with each other, aren't we? But they're your family. Yeah, it's, it's who you are. It's who you are. It's who, it's, it's who makes you you. And I, I just this country is that for me. It's my family. It's who I am. It's deep down embedded to my core is is I'm an American. As we look back on these presidents, some did build some good, some built some pretty dark things. Some was kind of a Richard Nixon EPA and Title IX, but also like we said, Cambodia and Watergate and all those things. But presidents are a symbol. They're a symbol of this country. And I think this film, Southside with You, it captured this idea that Barack Obama could be a, a symbol of maybe our hopes for a better America, an America of progress, an America of equality. But I suppose our presidents are as complicated as our country is. And we're all just going to try and have to build the one that, like you said, is based on hope and not on fear. Build the one we dream of. I couldn't agree more, Mr. Chu. As always, I appreciate you doing this with me. We go on the strange journeys when we do these episodes. Last time it was uh, analyzing 2020. This time we're analyzing the country through presidential films. But I I really love doing it with you. And I thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to do this again. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward. God bless you. And God bless America. We'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.